Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. Coming up this week, a busy, busy end of term for the Supreme Court. Uh, first, it said no to the Trump administration's plans to put a citizenship question on the 2020 census. But as we'll find out from our uh, in-house expert at Politico, uh, this isn't the end of that story. That question might be coming back. Then the court also decided that federal courts have no jurisdiction over partisan gerrymandering. And we'll walk you through what that means. It was a really, really big decision uh, and, and a bit of a blow uh, to, to some reformers who had high hopes for this case. Plus, we're checking in with the 2020 presidential candidates post-debate. What's the state of play? Well, you'll have to stick around to find out. All right, it's not the usual, but we are taping this episode a little bit before noon on Tuesday this week. That's July 2nd, getting in before the 4th of July holiday. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's give a big welcome to our guests this week. First, as always, we have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian in the studio. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much for being here. And a Nerdcast rookie, we've got Politico immigration reporter Ted Hessen here. Ted, welcome. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Let's dive right in. Uh, you, you're the big expert on on the big Supreme Court decision uh, from this past week. It was about uh, adding a citizen a question on citizenship to the census. And it was, a, it was a complicated, weird decision that cut a lot of different ways. But the big upshot of it was that uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the court's four liberals to, at least for now, prevent the Trump administration from putting a question about citizenship on the census. That's right. This was a surprising ruling uh, from the Supreme Court in that you had Chief Justice Roberts side with the liberal wing of the court um, and issue an opinion where he actually said that the Trump administration's rationale for adding this citizenship question uh, to the 2020 census was contrived. Um, you know, it's it's a big setback for the Trump administration. It means that uh, essentially after this ruling, he said that they need to come up with a better reasoning for this if they want to move forward with it. And he um, returned it to the lower courts for further deliberation. And g- give us a quick backstory on, on this whole process, uh, if you can. I mean, I know it's been a long one, but, but uh, the, you know, how, how did this come up? The citizenship hasn't been asked in the census in a long time. But uh, this is something the Trump administration was very interested in. So way back in... Um, 2018, March 2018, the Commerce Department said that it would be adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census. And this hadn't been asked since 1950. And even then in 1950, it was only asked of foreign-born residents in the U.S., uh, where you said, are you foreign-born? And then it asked you if you're a naturalized uh, person in the U.S. Um, So this would have been totally different to add this to to the census. And Back in March 2018, the Commerce Department said that the Justice Department needed this information to better enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is a law that essentially protects minority rights to vote. Um, But there were um, soon enough, I mean, there was litigation over this and there was um, also criticism that if the questions added that it's going to depress the response rate in immigrant communities because people are going to be afraid to answer. And that comes with huge political ramifications, right? Depressed response rate 
we're talking, you know, about generally hitting urban areas, uh, people who are afraid that potentially the government would misuse this information or, or whatever. And, and th- I mean, that would have big ramifications for uh, the next round of redistricting, all sorts of uh, stuff for the next the next 10 years. That's right. I mean, the primary purpose of the census and what's outlined in the Constitution is to do this count so that they can dole out the number of congressional seats for each state. Um, So you saw instantly states like New York, uh, California, were quick to jump into litigation and and to oppose this. Um, Beyond that, federal funds are allotted based on this. And you're talking about more than $675 billion worth of funds that will be dished out based on what this census says. So, um, you know, even a slight drop in certain states that are immigrant heavy could have big consequences in those communities. And so now walk, uh, walk us through the process of the litigation here ending up to the Supreme Court. Basically, what, what, what Roberts found in his opinion uh, was that the, the Trump administration didn't follow the correct processes to to add a question such as this, that there there are rules about how to how to go about doing this that that were ignored that's right. I mean, specifically, they were looking at whether the Trump administration followed federal regulatory law and did this the proper way. And I think when um, Chief Justice Roberts looked at it, he just couldn't see the evidence in the case matching the rationale of this Voting Rights Act um, uh, explanation for why they were adding it. And the reason for that is, you know, all sorts of different evidence came up um, in in these multiple trials that were going on, um, including emails that between Secretary Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and uh, former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who's an immigration hardliner, um, emails that actually predated the Justice Department going ahead and saying that they needed this for voting rights reasons. Um, beyond that, there were uh, emails saying that um, former White House advisor Steve Bannon wanted to meet with Commerce Secretary Ross on this. And then you even saw him saying in emails, um, why hasn't this question been added yet? And can we talk to the Justice Department about this? And this is all coming before we actually heard the Justice Department come out uh, when they were supposedly saying that they wanted to add the question. Um, and I think it was really hard for um, Chief Justice Roberts to ignore that evidence uh, when, when this case was presented before him. So w- what what happens now? The big part that, that everyone was looking at is, like, okay, are, are they going to allow the Commerce Department to add this question or not? And the answer is no, but the also answer is also no for now, right? That's right. I mean, they essentially said that it wasn't done the right way, um, but the administration still has the chance, if it wants to, to go back and try and do it the right way. I think the, the questions are, do they have the time, enough time to do it? Um, statute says that they need to hold the census by April 1st of next year. And there were several deadlines that were already laid out in court um, that at this point we've blown past. I mean, the first one was that census officials said previously that they needed to start printing questionnaires or have the questionnaire finalized by June 30th. Um, At at this point, we're past that deadline. Um, There was a second census official or another census official who said in extreme cases, they could maybe push these preparations all the way back to October 31st. Um, But even then, they're not looking at much time if it means going all the way back to the drawing board and refashioning a proper rationale for adding this question and going through the proper procedures, um, whether it could be done this quickly remains to be seen. I have to ask you one more question about all this. And this was happening as the Supreme Court had already heard their arguments. So it seems like it probably wasn't involved in the ultimate decision that that Roberts wrote. But I have to ask you about the, the role that as this is now kicked down to lower courts, and there's other lower court cases regarding this that that need to be settled to, to answer those questions that, that you just posed. Uh, there, there are these hard drives from a, a deceased Republican redistricting expert uh, that have suddenly 
become a, a a big part of of this story that that were were handed over by his his daughter. Yeah, this is an amazing twist in this legal saga. And just weeks before we were expecting the Supreme Court to issue this opinion, um, in one of these cases in Maryland, a, a federal case, um, there were discovered hard drives from deceased Republican redistricting strategist Thomas Hoffler. And essentially what these hard drives had were documents that showed that he had been pushing and agitating for a citizenship question on the census and that he had actually been in touch with census officials. And this is something that wasn't previously disclosed uh, in the ongoing litigation. Um, And it just opened up all new questions about what the real intent was behind adding this. Um, And there were actually a series of letters sent right in the run-up to the Supreme Court ruling on this, um, not saying that they should rule one way or the other or take one action or the other, but, um, you know, the plaintiff in the case were saying, look, we found this evidence and, and we want to present it to you that there's more to this case than you've seen so far in the record. Um, now, whether that was taken into, a cor- uh, into account by John Roberts when he made his decision, um, you know, it's hard to say. Um, but there was always the risk that if he, say, sided in favor of the Trump administration and let them add the question, well, maybe more evidence would have come out that would have shown even more clear links between uh, Republican strategists like Hoffler and uh, the Trump administration on this. That's fascinating. And that brings us to our second big Supreme Court uh, decision from from last week. They always they always save the big ones for the end of turn so they can head out of town while you know after dropping a bomb on <laughs> on on us reporters and, and people watching it. But uh, that that was one that was specifically about redistricting. I mean, this census question is going to have a big impact on redistricting, whether it's added or not. But the this one was more about how the lines are drawn, and th- this was the one that political junkies like us, Charlie, were really watching very closely to, to, to see what would happen. Yeah, that was the one that we were kicking around the most in, in the office, the idea. I mean, gerry- gerrymandering has been you know, just a, a, a horrific thicket of cases over the last couple of decades. And, uh, you know, it's twisting and winding and contorted and, and hard to follow in lots of ways. But this one, the, 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 the uh, Supreme Court's ruling on, on gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering, really, uh, I, I think, caught some people off guard. And I think there is a, some dispute in our newsroom about the nature of this and and just how well, well Scott you, you wrote a lot about it why don't you walk us through why this partisan gerrymandering ruling from the Supreme Court mattered yeah basically so the you know the Supreme Court has has policed racial gerrymandering for a long time they basically said that it's a violation of of the 14th amendment and, and is a constitutional violation to draw uh, districts, legislative or congressional districts, that disadvantage uh, the or that dilute the voting power of of people of a certain race. Not allowed to do that. W- what we've seen in recent years is we've seen uh, reform advocates uh, all around the country pushing uh, cases, making a similar arguments that about the process of drawing lines that disadvantage people uh, of a certain political party. And they've made that on 14th Amendment grounds, equal protection. They've made it on First Amendment grounds, freedom of speech. Um, And we've seen a lot of these cases bubble up um, toward the Supreme Court. And over and over again, the court has, has kind of punted on them, basically, and uh, they and there was this feeling that Justice Anthony, Ken- former Justice Anthony Kennedy, I should say, wanted to establish some sort of guidelines for how much partisan gerrymandering is too much. He had basically written something to that effect in a previous decision. So you have all these cases where uh, you had academics who were coming up with formulas of how to judge gerrymandering schemes, and and they were getting kicked up to the court, and some of them were getting sent back on procedural stuff, and then finally, a couple have made it except with the twist that Kennedy's no longer on the court. He was replaced by a Trump appointee, Brett Kavanaugh, 
last year. And finally, the court issued their, their big decision on it. They basically said that partisan gerrymandering is, is, a, uh, is, is not policeable by federal courts. It's just beyond their scope. It's, it's political. It's, it's inherent in the system. And they can't be in the business of, of judging it. That's what Roberts wrote in a 5-4 decision with the conservatives on one side and the liberals on the other. Scott, why was there so much hand-wringing over this, this decision? Well, I think I think the Democratic Party um, and and the left in general has gotten very invested in in this idea that they were going to be able to um, to, to do something about this, and, and especially in the aftermath of just how badly the 2010 redistricting process hurt the Democratic Party because it happened right after the 2010 wave election for Republicans. So you had Republican governors and Republican state legislators empowered throughout the country to draw lines that have preserved their power. Now, obviously, they weren't perfect, right? They they fell. The, the House still fell in the 2018 uh, re, re, uh, Democratic wave, and now Democrats control the House. But you see in states like Michigan or Wisconsin or wherever that that Republicans managed to keep control of state legislatures there uh, despite losing the popular vote badly. And and that's caused a lot of angst uh, among reformers, among Democrats. And, and so I think there, w- there was a great hope that, that the court would see this and try and correct it. And, uh, and so there, there was a lot of disappointment that they didn't. However, as, as uh, Steve Shepard and I wrote, um, the fact that the Supreme Court isn't jumping in here doesn't mean that the fight over gerrymandering is over. It's just moving into different venues. But isn't it, uh, you know, as, as redistricting cases go, and when we're talking about redistricting, we're talking about the, the drawing of the lines for your state legislative district or your state senate district or congressional district, district, and those lines matter a great deal in terms of the allocation of political power through states. As gerrymandering or redistricting cases go, isn't this kind of the least pernicious of them? Meaning this was not one where lines were drawn based on race or uh, factors like that. Um, this was really just about pure politics. And, and this is a practice that has been going on for some time now. I mean, I can remember as a young reporter among the first cases um, among in, in the 1990s. And uh, at the time when Democrats controlled most or many state legislatures, they were the ones doing it to Republicans. And in fact, uh, you know, the Speaker of the California House was famous after the, he drew a map that just crushed the California Republicans across the state. He was joking. He was openly joking about it, said it was his, his, the map was his contribution to modern art. And I guess my point is, that this could very well change as you know with the as soon as democrats pay a little more attention to winning over state legislatures yeah. and they could find themselves in the same position and because of that reason to me it's it's far less uh, troubling or pernicious than some other court decisions on political practices whether it might be redistricting or even campaign finance yeah i mean you you make some valuable points there i think so in the meantime what what democrats are focused on now that the the federal court it, it, it's interesting. It was that we wrote that given that that now the the Supreme Court said that federal courts aren't going to police this. So Democrats have said, well, okay, so we're going to redouble our efforts on a few things: winning state legislatures and governorships in 2020, so we can control the process. And also something a, a little less closely followed, even less closely followed than state legislatures, trying to win control of state supreme courts, which is really interesting because there there have been a number of efforts in recent years by Democrats and Democratic-backed groups to overturn Republican maps in state court as opposed to federal court using uh, lines in state constitutions as as their um, as their as as the backbone of their argument it happened in Pennsylvania before the 2018 elections, among other places. I think that just about does it for our time. So, Charlie, thank you for thank you for taking the lead, walking through that uh, the the gerrymandering question. 
Thanks, Scott. And Ted, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate you lending your expertise to us. Happy to do it. All right. And Charlie is sticking around for our second segment, which is all about 2020. The first round of debates are over. The first set of post-debate polls are rolling in, talking about the Democratic primary, of course. And we've got Politico's national political reporter, Natasha Karecki, back on the line to explain where everyone stands. Natasha, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. All right. So we saw the debates, the big moments, the small moments, the candidates who didn't really have any moments uh, uh, last week. We, we uh, uh, dissected them ad nauseum uh, on Politico.com and on the Nerdcast. Um, so one week later, what, what are we really seeing? What, uh, what are, what are the, your early impressions of the, the effects from the debate? Well, we're seeing, we're seeing the fallout, um, and mainly with the, with the top tier Joe Biden just getting hammered. He, the first uh, couple polls that came out right afterwards is showing Biden's dropping. He's he's looking very vulnerable. Um, you know, he's been his whole campaign has been built around this inevitability and and you know projecting this aura that he only he can beat Trump. And you know, when you have a senator taking him apart on stage the way she did, um, it, it flipped everything on its head. So now you see Harris surging um, to the top tier. Um, in that in the CNN poll that was released on Monday, um, she she is she she's getting traction. Elizabeth Warren's getting traction, and Biden and Biden's dropping. Um, so we're seeing things just getting shuffled around, um, and and mainly on the top tier. I mean, I think we'll probably see more, you know, later on with how everybody else shakes out. But um, but right now, it's storylines are, are are what's happening with Biden, Harris, and and, and I think probably Warren. Yeah. We'll jump back to, to Harris in a second. Charlie, I'm curious what you, what you thought about Biden. He seemed to almost be be suffering from the syndrome that we see from uh, sitting presidents when they get into debates, you know, when they're running for reelection, that they're, they just have not been in a situation where they've been challenged for years and they just get hit with a ton of bricks by someone. Uh, and, and I mean, that, that's, that seemed to be what happened on the stage. He, he really struggled to answer effectively uh, the, the points that, that, that Harris was making. And, you know, peop, a lot of people are, are quibbling with some of those, uh, his defenders are quibbling with some of them in, uh, in the aftermath. But on the, on the stage in that moment, he, was, he was, seemed to be ha- having some trouble. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I thought two things. First, I thought he was very rusty. Uh, I mean, he hasn't done this in six years, uh, or actually seven years. Uh, his last debate would have been in, in 2012, uh, where he was excellent. But, you know, he has gotten a lot older, and there's been a lot of wear and tear in those years. And you see that on the campaign trail. He's not as fluid and as articulate as he used to be, um, which is not to say that, you know, he, he can't do well in debates, but like he's just not the same politician. But I think even more important than that, I think he was unprepared and undisciplined. They knew going in to the debate that people were going to try and take Biden down. He needed to uh, stay above the fray and to you know keep the the front runner's mantle wrapped around him and not punch down at anyone. And he was unable to do that in part because he was so uh, frustrated that. Kamala Harris came at him that way. I mean, give them credit. It was a perfectly planned ambush, perfectly planned and perfectly executed. And if Biden had been a little smarter, he would not have engaged in that. Uh, it was a, it was a no-win situation for him to sit there and have that conversation about busing, but he was unable to. She really got under his skin with that. And when he tried to respond, he, you know, it was really ineffective and uh, actually made him look much weaker. If I could just jump in on that really quick. I mean, clearly in some of his response, he knew so many specifics about Kamala Harris's, you know, 
local district. So he must have been prepared to some extent, right? I mean, I think it's just what we've been seeing on the trail, too, is he's really, he's really rusty, like you said, Charlie, when, it's, when he has to speak off the cuff, when he has to just think on his own um, and then put all that together. I mean, clearly they went over this at some point, but he doesn't have a teleprompter in front of him. He, he has to think of it on his own, and he was really struggling with that. And, and I would say even other parts of the debate where, I mean, there were lines that I've heard him say, you know, dozens of times at least, about the white supremacists and, and some of the reasons why he got into the race in the first place. He couldn't even, he couldn't even get those out effectively. You know, he just felt very like stumbling over his words. And um, it, he just seemed, he just, it, I think it exposed a lot of the vulnerabilities with him on stage and is making a lot of people question. Well, I mean, the, the, the biggest question, right? Like, can you see him on stage with, with Donald Trump? And, you know, I think a lot of people are now taking a second look at that. I think that's going to be a big question for the the, the next set of debates, right? It's like, is he able to, um, to, to convince folks that he's shaken off a little bit of that rust uh, o- over the next month? Uh, I said we'd return to to Harris and and Warren for that matter, and uh, and we should. I mean, one one of the the big obviously the 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 polling was was pretty stark that we saw from CNN yesterday. I I, I think it's kind of funny though that you know the, their campaign was was touting this polling when they they and others have been saying for months like oh don't don't look at the polls this early. Uh, and and stuff like that, but one one thing that that uh, was was undeniable, and I, I was watching this during during the debates, is that the the online fundraising, and you can you if you go to the Act Blue homepage, you can see like they have a counter on their homepage, not for any particular candidate, but just for all the people who use Act Blue, how much money is flowing through, and you could see it just spiking, and the numbers like rolling up really fast. It's like a it's like a, a real time like grassroots heartbeat monitor for for the Democratic Party, and we found out in the days since that Kamala Harris raised a ton ton of money in in the days following and uh so certainly seems to have um really like uh you know given an electric shock to to her campaign which wasn't wasn't really struggling necessarily but it kind of faded into the background a little bit uh w- would you agree with with that natasha oh yeah definitely i mean I, I think she was struggling to get her footing she wasn't really having good moments at these town halls i thought i thought warren uh judge were outshining her you know, in the CNN town house and MSNBC and so forth. Um, but but clearly she was prepared um, on this night. She took advantage of not just Biden, but of just the makeup of, you know, getting getting in, out in front when you're struggling for, for airtime. And she just dominated. I mean, and, and it wasn't even just that exchange. I mean, I was going over our, our live chat that, you know, Charlie was involved in, and you were too, it was early, like throughout the entire night. Like she was just very. She knew how to to hold the stage and um, and was just very commanding and, and and knew how to butt in. And that I think was really what 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 hurt a lot of the candidates, including Biden, but also Elizabeth Warren in the first debate. I mean, she was great in the beginning. She was very commanding, and then she just faded. She she was unable to to really break in. Um, Gillibrand the same as a lot of the others, um, but but. But Harris, um, Harris was able to do it. I, I, you know, one thing I will say that, you know, a lot of these candidates, you mentioned that Harris, that you know, their campaign had long said, "Oh, don't look at the polls." Well, you know, the other the other thing that they all try spinning to you is that, oh, well, we don't want to peak too soon; it's too early. And <laughs> and, and now you kind of wonder, she's going to become a target. I mean, she's sure. you know, shooting up to that high this quickly. 
Um, she's going to be a, a target in the next debate. And how many times can she roll this out? You know, yeah. you know, now everyone's ready for it. And, well, Biden should be ready for it. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Char- Charlie, that's such an interesting point also about, like, the, the ways to kind of... We, and we saw a lot of candidates trying to really, like, interrupt, essentially, as much as possible to try and own the stage. And then we'd see every so often the camera would uh, flash by Sanders or Biden kind of holding a, a, a finger up uh, in senatorial style, waiting for the moderators, who, of course, ignored them to... Um, to, to let them in. We saw a- Andrew Yang, who really like didn't try. He now claims his microphone was off, which I would have think would have thought he would have complained about in real time if it was actually true. Um, but but the debate kind of passed him by, I think. And, and it, it's interesting in terms of just like what what that um, what that quality of the debate uh, uh, advantages in certain candidates. Uh, when, when we're at this crowded stage of the primary. Yeah, I thought it was pretty fascinating to uh, watch the the attempts of the lesser known or lower tier candidates to uh, draft in the wake of some of the top tier candidates. You could see Swalwell, sort of uh, Eric Swalwell, the, the little known California congressman, trying to uh, take a shot at a couple candidates to try and sort of create some conflict that, that might resonate. Didn't really go all that well. Uh, you could see Marianne Williamson, uh, oddly, taking uh, sort of veiled shots at, at Elizabeth Warren uh, and Elizabeth with Warren's policy plans, even though Warren wasn't even on stage, you know, obviously Harris did a fantastic job of taking down uh, Biden and, and really shredding him. But then, then again, there there was uh, what I thought was really fascinating was the Texas on Texas violence. I mean, don't tell me that wasn't a little bit planned. Julian Castro <laughs> going after Beto uh, that way, and even if it wasn't, I mean, it just reveals a level of tension between those two. And you can you can imagine how that happens. Big state like Texas, two rising stars that are you know uh, bound to to come in conflict. And I mean, it's been going on for some time now. You didn't, know, yeah, didn't that feel like it's been building and building yeah. and building for months? Right, and it, <laughs> But he executed to- it so effectively. I thought, you know, it it was it didn't seem over the top. But I mean, telling I mean, telling Beto, you you haven't you should do your homework on this. I mean, some of the lines were great. Brutal, and, yeah. Uh, but but I thought it came off as somewhat. I mean, we knew what he was doing, but it still felt a little authentic and. Um, I, I, I thought it helped him a lot. I thought it was devastating uh, for Beto for a couple of reasons. First, first, what was really interesting is uh, the the there there seems to be some level of personal animosity between them. It, maybe animosity is too strong, but there is some tension between them because keep in mind, remember uh, Castro also uh, lit off a stink bomb when uh, Beto O'Rourke announced. Right. Remember with the day and uh, his fellow oh. Texan announced his presidential campaign, Castro rolls out uh, in a big press release with all these Texans that had supported him just to step on Beto's message, but I thought it was really devastating to Beto for a couple of reasons. You know, he, obviously he's been struggling, uh, hasn't uh, gotten traction in recent weeks, and has, has been fading in national consciousness. Uh, but what I thought was the most uh, devastating part of what Castro did to, to Beto was the idea that if you can't, uh, Castro really ate his lunch. And if you are looking for a candidate who's going to take on Donald Trump on the stage, like it's not going to reflect well on you if if Julian Castro, mild-mannered, uh, brilliant, and talented, and gifted Julian Castro, but still very mild-mannered Julian Castro. If he eats your lunch, what is Donald Trump going to do to you? <laughs> so let, let's I, I, let's finish off here. I, I'd like to go around the table, or, well, and you know, on the phone for Natasha. <laughs> uh, let, let's let's talk about you know coming out of these debates. We've got the next ones at the end of this month. I mean, what what 
what really changed in the in the debates and how you know what what are you looking for in terms of how how things play out in the next month leading up to the next ones and i'll i'll go first i think the the thing i i find really interesting is that it kind of got lost in the shuffle of the the harris biden uh, tussle but uh pete Buttigieg was was asked in the lead up to that about uh, the 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 recent police shooting in South Bend of an African American man and and uh, the the history of 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 kind of ra- racial animus and and racial problems in in his city and he basically said like, I haven't done well enough I've I've failed and I'm very curious to see how his campaign which has really projected this whiz kid uh, you know. Uh, Early success, you know, comeback stories uh, of his city, uh, young young phenom thing. I'm curious to see how his campaign adapts to or doesn't <laughs> um, to to absorb this self admitted big failure. Charlie, what 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 are you looking for? I, th- I thought Buttigieg's performance was also uh, fantastic. I thought the answer was great. The humility, I think, will go a long way. And he really showed his his skills, particularly as an articulate debater. You know, he showed his skills in full flower. I mean, the next thing I want I want to watch is like there's going to be a real whiff of desperation. You know, we thought we saw some desperation on the stage mm-hmm. for the lower candidates last week. I mean, imagine in July because that's going to be the last shot you get, and mm-hmm. you will see the people who who perform poorly will see their money dry up if they can't make it happen uh, in July. Then the, the last thing that I would say I'd be watching for is what Biden does to sort of uh, steady his footing. I mean, is mm-hmm. it going to be a case like where, remember when Obama had the really difficult debate against Mitt Romney in 2012? Well, the next time they debated, he sort of found his footing and, you know, got back his swagger and was better prepared and was humbled by the experience and got better. The question will be, can Biden get better at this? Uh, will he learn from his mistakes? Will he be better prepared? Will he be more disciplined? Will he have a more effective message in the next debate. Natasha, what are you thinking? Well, and, and, and just jumping off of that, if Biden can't do that, I mean, if he has another night like he did, I think that's just, it's going to be, if we think we see a precipitous fall right now, if, if it happens again, I, I think he's, I, maybe I'm going too far, but I feel like he's toast. I mean, mm. what does he have then if he, if he can't survive, you know, a bunch of Democrats on a stage? Um, you know, it's so, so that's one thing, and I, I wonder if um, I wonder if Harris can become more of a target uh, the next time around. Um, she, you know, we're we're already hearing a bunch of things in her past coming up, her years as a prosecutor. Um, so I, I wonder. I, I think the I think Charlie's right. The gloves are going to be off, um, but I, I think she's going to be, become more of a target. All right. I'm curious to see what kind of tea leaves we get about about all this over the next few weeks leading up to that that next clash. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on the line to join us. Thanks for having me. And Charlie, thank you, as always, for being here. Thank you, Scott. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. And a big thank you to Nerdcast producer Michaela Rodriguez. This is her last Nerdcast. We're wishing her a very, very uh, fun next step in her career. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Bill Cookman is our illustrator. If you like the Nerdcast, please remember, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk again next week.